0: QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugora as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs, and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research, and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded.
1: Welcome to How To Academia leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time on this podcast we talk to our friends students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world our guest this episode is Brenna Matheson Brenner is a current PhD candidate in QUT's School of Justice, as well as a unit coordinator, lecturer, tutor, and mother of two. On this episode, Brenner discusses her time working in child safety, how those experiences informed her PhD work, and the challenges of being a new mother, trying to balance parenting and work and mental health. A brief content warning here. Brenner discusses some experiences that she had following the birth of her first child, which include postnatal anxiety and thoughts of self-harm, These mentions are brief and don't go into too much detail, but they're important for really understanding one of the harder moments in Brenna's story, and how she learned to cope. Without any further ado, Brenna Matheson.
0: Welcome to How To Academia. Thank you. Who the heck are you?
2: Who am I? It's a... That could be a very deep question. So, my name is Brenna, Brenna Matheson. I am a Sessional academic and PhD
0: student here at QT. Where might students have seen you before? In what subjects have you starred? Oh, look, I've been here for a long time now.
2: Started doing Sessional work way back, started marking here in 2010, started teaching in 2012. So, I've gone through a range of units. The main, un- like the, the key units that I've taught in are Indigenous issues and criminal justice when we had it as a core unit, um, which I also coordinated in, in 2016. I've been involved in forensic psychology in the law, social ethics and the criminal justice system, another unit that's not with us anymore but has been adapted turned into new newer units. Goodness. Um, research methods. I've also taught in um, professional academic skills so that's in a lot of its iterations with a a variety of different coordinators. I have also coordinated in units such as criminal law and context, technology and crime, theory and um, theory and crime
0: and global political institutions. That's an awful lot What is your takeaway from having taught across so many units?
2: That each and every part of what we teach here at QUT is essential to creating a good justice professional. It's all interesting, important content. Each unit has its own merit. And, yeah, so all interesting stuff, very important for justice professionals to have because we offer such a diversity of outcomes or occupations from incompleting your
0: justice degree here. Did you complete a justice degree here? I did. So I did my
2: undergraduate degree here in justice and I went on to do honours as well.
0: And then what happened?
2: That's how I kind of got this personal academic gig. So having worked, having my research area being in in the field of young people and indigenous young people in particular. So for my honours I looked at the experiences of indigenous young people and remand. And what are the outcomes for that specific group and from doing um that area of research i started working within indigenous issues and in criminal justice they wanted me to tutor because for some reason i was one of the few people that was actually researching into first nations australians which is quite um distressing in of itself yeah and everything seemed to snowball from there they seemed to like what I could bring to the table. Yeah. I en- really enjoyed the gig. And I enjoyed being able to facilitate people's learning and develop my own in that regard too.
0: Somewhere in that career trajectory you ended up working in child protection. How did that happen?
2: I did. So in all, um, in the time that I finished, so I've completed my completed my honours, on handed in on New Year's Day of 2012 of all days, having got an extension after the 2011 floods. So after handing that in, I've been questioning for ages exactly where I wanted to go. I always knew I wanted to work somewhere with young people. So whether that was going to be drawn to youth justice as a case worker there or working in child protection. And I've been putting out numerous job applications and it took a while because at that time there was a change in government in Queensland. With the LNP, a lot of jobs were cut in the public service sector, so it took me a bit longer to get a job within the field that I wanted to. So I think I would have actually, because I started applying in actually 2011, because I wanted to, because I was doing my honours part-time, my plan was to kind of pick up something before completing, but you know, life has its weird way of taking its own journey um, and leading you where it thinks you should go. So that's where I wanted to go, that's where I ended up getting a job in, because i I finally chose child protection I was like yep this is I can't even remember what really led me to that to be honest I think back then I wasn't really quite sure I think now in reflection I have an idea of why but yeah a put out a lot of feelers there are actually a few different service centres that said yes to me had a few interviews I ended up choosing to work at Kabocha and I stayed there for near on a year about a year before I wanted to start a family a few other, few other things going on as well in the sector, but I did want to. I really wanted to start a family at that point. I was in my in my early thirties, and I decided this was not the place for me to do that. Did not feel safe in that place to do that. So I decided to come back to QT to do sessonal work to do all my PhD because I still had ties with QT. This entire time, I was still doing the odd marking job and still um, had links in. Um, with the with the intent to go and do my PhD because everyone had always been asking me for years when are you going <laughs> to come back and do your PhD. So finally, I relented and I did my PhD as informed by my experiences in the child protection sector.
0: What about child protection made it feel unsafe having a family?
2: Look, I saw other CSSOs, so child safety support officers who were pregnant at the time, and how they were treated at, at contact. This is when we have parents um, that have supervised um, contact with their children. Because essentially we are the body that comes and takes children away from their, from their homes, from their parents. Mm-hmm. And to be with child in going into those contacts and dealing with clients There would be an an enormous amount of animosity Mm. there and that's not a place that I wanted to be in having children, especially considering that I'd had a miscarriage a few years before for unknown factors and you always seem to end up blaming yourself or something that was happening in your environment at the time, even though we all know there is sometimes no reason, good reason why people miscarry, um, but there's always in the back of my mind I don't need the stress Mm. in case this happens again. I ended up miscarrying again just because it wasn't meant to be, um, but I ended up conceiving two beautiful children. Um, now we're you know many years down the track so life does work out for some at some point along the, along the track.
0: Child protection seems to have this idea that a justice degree is not relevant to the work that they do. Do you think that's accurate?
2: Look, yes and no. There are staunch... The the industry is really divided there. There are people that strongly believe that that the industry had lacked strong professionalism for a long time and that people going into the work really needed to come from that social worker background and education and really have had a lot more experience in terms of placement before jumping into the role. Um, Others think that a justice degree... Absolutely equips you because no matter how much training or education you have it's really hard to to get someone ready for that role because it's so it's it's so dynamic it's so complex it changes all the time that I think even the most well-trained social worker could still struggle within that within that work so I, I could see that potential social people who have a social work background could have bring some certain strengths to the role be probably more suited to or better equipped for dealing with clients for being ready for the, the, the kind of tips and tricks, interview techniques, the, the, those kind of things that Justice might... Um, that is, we're really starting to here, though. Like, I mean, the degree has changed a lot since I did it as an undergrad. And that's what happens with, with life. Mm-hmm. Things change. They they change where they need to. They change with um, people's experience and the research that comes into it and where we find the gaps. No, nothing's ever perfect in, its, in in its infancy. I felt that I had the knowledge and skills going into the, to the role as much as um, I could. I felt that I could draw on other aspects of, of work experience that I had in terms of building rapport with clients because um, I think sometimes that's also personality-based and not necessarily something you can teach everybody, but everyone's different. So yeah, I think it does. I mean, we cover so many different things, as I said before. I mean, the range of subjects that I've listed that I've just been involved in, and that's not even half of the, the kind of units that we offer here at QUT. Now we've got a lot more in terms of investigations, um, trauma, things that you know people could bring into a child protection role. But then still, like you have to have that on the ground experience and you have to have proper training within the sector before you even start working on the ground, which is a huge issue that everyone's trying to figure out how to fix because there's not enough bums on seats as it is. So to have to provide weeks and weeks of training before you go into a role, sometimes they just can't do that because you need to have people to cite children Mm. so
0: so you said that your time in child protection informed your phd tell us about your phd so i'm
2: looking at the influence of occupational culture on decision making and that's all facets of decision making but really lending itself to this idea of um, removal because that's the most intrusive decision that we could make um, is to remove a child from a family. And just even yesterday, I saw another ABC News Online article about the removal that was done at a hospital of a newborn from a mother and how distraught the child protection worker was, the doctor and everyone in that scenario. So it's significant, those removals. I mean, that's of of infants. Removing a child at any age Is quite significant and the fact that when I was there, um, the time that I was working at that particular service centre but into conversations with other people, other child safety officers, this is something that's not that centre specific. The culture around the workplace, so office dynamics um, in, in part of the occupational culture but also obviously the work itself. Um, so, you know, the work can be quite traumatic. It's, 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 it's confronting at times. It's, it's scary mm. at times. Bucket load that people could talk about the experiences of you know, police versus child protection officers in terms of the types of work that they've got to do and the types of resources and supports that they have, as well as the types of people that come into those positions. So all that culminates in this type of culture that permeates itself through that workspace and how it impacts the individual and their ability to make decisions and how that impacts teams ability to make decisions and obviously really in particular management because at the end of the day decisions are not made in isolation they're made as a, as a team that had to be ticked off by team leaders and managers so they're the people where the buck essentially stops but it is the Child Safety Officer's names that are on the paperwork, mm. right? And that's what the client will see. They don't see the team lead or the manager's name. They see your name mm. and you're the one that has to work with them for a decision that you may not have agreed with, that you didn't feel that was done in, um, in an evidence-based way. And I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of how that occupational culture influenced decisions and the general dynamic of the office and I wanted to explore that further because... I, just because I could see it and I, at the time I thought maybe it was just my service centre because it was it is the highest it's the busiest service centre in in Queensland it has the highest notifications of any service centre I know there have been some changes made since the very sad passing of Mason Jet Li and the subsequent inquiry you know I think there was another service centre that was made at least Caboolture was split or another one popped up in but still, I mean, the, people, the officers working out there are still saying there's more needs to be done in terms of more, you know, less caseloads, more officers, a whole lot of different things. But at the end of the day, we've gotta be drawing it back to what should be influencing decisions. And what should be influencing decisions is that evidence-based practice. What are the factors that we have on the ground? What is what is our investigation telling us? What What is the actual harms? Um, in what ways does child being harmed? How can we substantiate that? And what is going to be the best outcome going forward? What is the best thing that we can do to protect this child but actually but actually mend this family and thinking about on a broader community level and not just that one case. For every other case that's going to come after that young person because you've got to, you can't be thinking... Small picture, um, and it's hard to when you're in, in in the moment because you are thinking on the fly. You obviously dealing with those harms as they present to you, but it's a bigger picture mm. for child protection in in that that broader area and across the state of Queensland in the state of in the, in the country of Australia. The the kind of decisions that you're making and the the reasoning that you're giving for them will sometimes then influence how other decisions are made and these decisions need to be evidence-based because it's. we're also making decisions about the most vulnerable people in society. Vulnerable in terms of the young children, obviously, but also vulnerable in terms of the kind of families that come into contact with the child protection system and we, we know, obviously, the criminal justice system as well. These people are not voluntary. They don't want us to be involved in their lives. Some do. Some do. Look, there are some that 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 are that wanted to seek help but didn't know how to. But for the majority of them, they don't want child protection to be involved for a range of issues so it's about getting outcomes that are good for everyone there's going to be long term for everyone
0: what makes child protection a justice issue
2: because we know research speaking experience in the sector that children that come into contact with the child protection system are more likely to be on or to be on youth youth justice orders. There is that nexus for many different reasons. They're on the radar for both. They become once they get on the radar for one, they become they come on the radar for both because they're more surveilled um, surveilled than others than other people. And we also know that there are certain portions of the the community that are surveilled more than, more than others. So that's where we see this just disproportionate representation for different groups across both parts, or both sectors, yeah.
0: If you were to give some advice to uh, students that are considering going into child protection, what would you tell them? Good question.
2: Trust your back yourself. Trust your gut instinct. Trust that you know the decision that you're making, that the you are, that you're making the right decision, or seeing the right things, or having the right conversations. A lot of people will try and skew the conversation, skew decision making to fit the bigger agendas that are happening at the time, and make you feel like you're incompetent and what you're doing because it doesn't match what else is going on there. Trust that you know what you're doing that you're a professional that you have you know you don't have all the skills that you you've got enough tools in your toolbox to keep on building your skill set but you have enough to do the job at hand and find the right people there's other there's going to be other people that are like minded like you at any service center that you're at that you can do really good work with and yet, yeah, just try, trust your instincts it's Worth. it's it's a tough gig there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to go (laughs) and work in child protection I think it takes a certain person to be able to do the job to be honest like it is not for everyone but I feel that the people that are drawn to the role are drawn there for a reason and under the right right circumstances could stay there as long term practitioners if they have the, the correct supports wrapped around them to do that
0: this is also a... This is a this is a genuine question as a failed child protection worker, having lasted almost four years in the system. Mm-hmm. How do you think you make those long-term careers in child protection happen?
2: I think it's... I don't know. I think it's different for different people, from my experience. I think a lot of other factors have to line up for you both personally and professionally to make it work. I think the people that... Are they long-term? Because there were people when I was there that had been there for 10 plus years and I'm like, how do you do that? And those are your people that are senior crack as well. They get to those positions. Some people should not be in those roles. Some people are really well-suited to those roles. I think it is the people that are really dedicated that that have enough to just keep on going back and fighting the good fight. Really, those are the one, the one type category, should I say, of people that, that last in um, in child protection, the really good the really good practitioners that seem to be able to, and I think also it's about job hopping around, so you're still in the sector, so the good practitioners are there, they'll realise that they're coming to an end, they can't work in this service centre anymore on this role, so they'll go and transition over to maybe Kinship and Care over here for another couple of years, or go out west. For another couple of years and then just circle around service centers and you know arranging in, in the different roles that are an offer and that is constantly changing with how the sector changes because The people that last longest in the industry are the really really good ones the ones that are willing to sacrifice a lot and be strategic in terms of moving around and when i say sacrifice it means that things have to line up personally and professionally yeah um, because you have to do give up a lot of your personal time to work in child protection and the other half are the bullies the people that have been um, hoisted up in the managerial structure of the organisation that seem to almost get, for lack of a better word, tenure in their positions, that no one can seem to shift them, no matter how horrendous they act and how bad, again, for lack of a better word, because I don't like saying bad decision-making, but essentially that's what it is like there are some bad decisions that are made how do you reconcile that you can't sometimes you can't and for some people that is burnout point point. and that's why a lot of people choose to leave because they cannot understand how these people are staying can stay in these positions and how good practice can happen How can we be a caring and giving organisation meant to be taking care of the most vulnerable when we've got such toxicity in the places where these decisions are being made?
0: What do you think causes people in child protection to become bullies?
2: This is what I'm trying to unpack in part of my research. I have my own ideas. I can draw on ideas from the participants that I've spoken to and just other colleagues from having worked in the system that are not part of um, this research that have just tapped out completely. I think there are many reasons why people get there. I think some people come in like that. I think some people... Because well, I think, for, for some, what has been a critique of this, the, the industry or the sector for, I don't know, Last 10 or so years, is that a lot of higher-up positions were being filled by people that weren't social workers, not from child protection backgrounds, that were slotting in management positions from people without that kind of learned expertise in child protection, and maybe that's because of the high loads of burnout, potentially, with people weren't build, being able to build up with these roles. I don't know, they could have just thought, like, because sometimes some reason as a business structure people think that it's a good idea just to bring in someone with a fresh perspective which um, for this line of work I don't think works very well um, because you need to understand what's going on in on the ground and the frontline space so I think that's a potential reason people come in and they're not equipped for the position they come in with this potential high mighty attitude of trying to clean house when there's no house really to clean in that respect but I think a lot of what can happen is as I keep saying, certain people are drawn to the role. So whether that means their childhood growing up, I don't know. Things are also not great at home. They feel like they need to do something to create equilibrium. Either, I don't know, either for themselves, for the community, give back in that respect. And for some people, it can be therapeutic in that in that sense. people come into the role, feel like they're doing really good for themselves and for the community, and can be good pr- practitioners there. But by the nature of the work and the things that you see on a daily basis what happens with that work in terms of the office and the other the churn the other the other workload stresses um, that can chip away on people that are already bringing you know trauma or mm-hmm. other issues. Um, there's a lot of people that come from domestic and family violence backgrounds or are the current victims of them that have substance abuse issues that are presenting in the workplace. I've seen a lot of that happen and part of me goes well of course. I mean, you talk to police. We know a lot of police. You know, ex and probably current serving members have substance abuse issues, primarily alcohol, because it's a self-medication way of dealing with what... Trauma response. Yeah, what, you're, ..what you're dealing with, because you don't want to put your hand up and say, I'm not coping, because there's another big problem in both of those sectors, particularly child protection, because you're seen as weak and not being able to be fit for purpose, fit fit for the role. No-one wants to say, I need some help and get some proper clinical not clinical help for the issues they're experiencing, plus for some reason I think people feel that if people know that you're experiencing this or have had hardship in the past, that that somehow is going to taint your view on on the work that you're doing that it will create bias within the decisions that you're making, and of course it, it will in some respect, because there's inherent bias in everything that we see, do and decisions that we make. It's about acknowledging that. Mm. And it actually can create you greater understanding of the factors at play. So there's a lot of reasons why people end up being like that. It's something that they bring with them and where they're triggered by the nature of the work.
0: What would you like to see change in child protection? (laughs) I was trying to... Oh, look. (laughs) (laughs) A lot.
2: A lot of things need to change. There's also a bit of the chicken and the egg, you know, what, what causes what, but the, the culture needs to change. But for the culture to change, the system needs to change, the way that it's structured, the way that we think about child protection needs to change. Like obviously we need to offer in more supports for workers. There needs to be more workers, well, more well, like better equipped, better trained, more placements in terms of social work. And for those who don't come from that social work background, more you know, placement opportunities or more on the ground training one of the participants I spoke to was actually saying wouldn't it be great if we had a child protection academy like they do for police hmm. we'd send, we'd have recruits that, you know, are win that academy they get trained up the way that police do and go into the role that way, that would make sense wouldn't it but one of the, one of the key issues is the way that child protection is viewed by the community is very different there's this stigma around docs, like Docs are the enemy. They're either bleeding-heart idiots that care too much about children and just can't seem to make the right decision that way or we're just too risk-adverse and just remove, remove, remove um, without a second thought as to what that impact's going to be. The public doesn't really understand what child protection workers do, so there's a real miscommunication and mistranslation of what a child safety officer actually does and how we're perceived in, um, in the media, but also in, like in in TV shows and movies, mm. it's like this whole persona of child protection workers is just completely not factually correct to what the job's really like
0: just, yeah. I also think that people don't understand generally the need for child protection Yeah, because they think child abuse happens in other locations to other people in other communities and what happens here isn't really child abuse or it's not bad enough that we should have state intervention into what's happening yeah absolutely
2: which is a bizarre thought because our community has never been as disconnected from Mm. one another as we ever have been in history people don't know their neighbors anymore there's no sense of community It's every man for himself really in society and that creates a ripple effect it creates makes it much easier for people to it makes it much easier for abuse and neglect to happen in the home because those triggering effects for parents are much more pronounced mm. when there's feelings of isolation and alienation, when you don't have the sense of community anymore. And that's a big problem. So,
0: yeah. It's This, I mean, I blame neoliberal ideology and capitalism, but I think that the this notion that, we romantically say it takes a tribe to raise a child. And we romanticise that notion and, and I then I think people really understand what that actually means. Yeah, when I know. They say it. I know. There's no kind of mechanism for that to happen in the white Western... No. ..world. And then in cultures like uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures that actually take seriously it's a tribe to raise a child, we say, well, that child has attachment issues because it's been raised by a whole bunch of different people. Yeah. Which... I, I think that that framing and that that ideology is one of the incredibly problematic issues in child protection. that stems from our community status.
2: Absolutely. And speaking from some my experience with someone that had has experienced postnatal anxiety and depression as a result of many factors, but one of them being that I was doing it all by myself. I had no family, To help me, and I felt like I couldn't reach out to anyone because you feel this as a as a parent these days, as a mother these days, this responsibility that you should be doing it on your own. And if you you aren't, if you're not coping, doing it on your own, then you're failing as a parent. And the more that you fear, you're thinking that that you know creates that anxiety loop, and the worse things get because the further you disconnect and isolate yourself, it's a big problem. It's a massive problem.
0: How have you reconciled that struggle with doing it all and being a mother and a casual academic and a PhD student?
2: Well, my kids go to child care now, I don't do it by myself and I'm happy to say that. I'm happy to say that, because everyone comes up, a lot of people go, oh my god, you do so much. And I'm like, I don't do so much. I have help with everything that I do and that's how it works. No one can carry all of this by themselves. It's impossible. I tried, and it broke me. It physically, it it physically broke me, and it mentally broke me. Because I thought that I was supposed to, and I realised that's that was my breaking point. And you know, in in course in term in part of dealing with that, working through it, and getting better, I realised that that it's like I'd always I'd always said these comments like Oh, it takes a, you know a village to raise a child, but I never actually. like I understood the words but I never truly understood their meaning Mm. until that point in time where I was doing it by myself and it was ridiculous so now I have help I have a partner that helps me raise my child I have extended family members that help take my children when um, I need to I have my childcare that helps raising my children but they're four days a week so I can do my job and do my research and give back to the community that way, and keep developing myself as a woman in society that wants to be somebody and gives give something back to the community for, for that in itself, but also to show two young boys that their mum was a strong, empowered woman that they that should and that women should be treated with respect and can do anything. So there's a lot of reasons as to why why I can do what I do and that's because I have all the help in the world to do it and I'm okay with that and I'm proud to say that.
0: Why did you not just quit your PhD? Because I'm I don't know it's not in my nature to do
2: that. I commit to once I commit myself to something I see it through I'm like a dog with a bone. I don't like failing and that's why that was such an issue for me because I felt it was the first time in my life I was actually going to fail something but it wasn't me it wasn't me failing; it was just me realizing that nobody can do this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I want, like, I want to do all these things, and it, I, I like the challenge of making things work. I, I like being busy. I like being a busy person that's constantly having to rethink and refit and resize and push myself that little bit further and see if this works better. That's just who I am.
0: How did you come back from that breaking point?
2: It's a lot of a lot of self-thought, to be honest. Like, I did go, I was, I I, I asked for help, for one thing. And I, there, were family, part my, there were family members that were like, you need to get help. But they were telling me that for a while. And I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> what are you talking about? Part of that fed into the fact that my mother had postnatal anxiety. She was a chronic alcoholic. Um, never got help for, proper help for her substance abuse, never got properly diagnosed with postnatal anxiety my father was the one that figured out that's what that was Mm. and that's what really fed into, in part, I mean it wasn't the only reason why she had substance abuse issues, but in part fed into that and I was determined that was not going to be my story, that was her story she always tried to tell us, me, me that we were so alike and I was like no, I'm nothing like you and the more pushback that I was doing, the sicker I was getting, until I reached a point where one day I just, I remember just sitting there, this is like after, you know, know, it's been, made some lifeline calls, I'd done some really weird, you know, you know, I, you know, thinking of ways that, you know, I wanted to harm myself, and I just went, this is just ridiculous you wanted this child so much. You've tried for so many years to get pregnant and now this is how you're going to act? Like, pull your shit together. Like, this is not okay. What is happening is not okay, you need to do better. And I went and sought the help that I needed. It was hard, it was hard to say the ship that's sinking, but once I made that decision, things started to get better. Not right away. But I went and spoke to my GP. I actually presented an emergency a couple of times to go and get help, but ended up turning that down because they wanted to take me into the psych ward without my child. And I was like, that's not going to work because I was breastfeeding. I'm like, no. And they were going to put me in the lavender unit down at the Gold Coast. God,
0: but the lavender unit just sounds awful. Um,
2: so it's the only baby and mother unit, mm. which is, I think is ridiculous considering it's the only place. That can offer that kind of help for people with postnatal anxiety that still want to be with their children which is really important to not separate because I didn't want to be separated from my child because um, that child was not at risk you know it's very very weird also being on the other side of the couch um, that was another thing that I had to grapple with um, so when they were asking you you know doing the interviews and asking me all the questions I'm like this used to be me asking the same questions, and I, knew, I'm like, I know, I know how to answer this in a way that I can just walk out of here. <laughs> and No one <laughs> would be none the wiser. So, but yeah, I did go on medication, and that helped. But before that, medication even started to to take effect, I'd already changed my mindset because I wanted to do better, and it was hard though. Like it took me a while to get back because I knew that medication was really going to get me some way I needed to work through what was happening to me I needed to work through the other parts of my life that I needed to figure out in terms of work and making things work. and it took me a while like I came back into teaching at the beginning of 2018 you know coming off being being a unit coordinator where I was working externally because I didn't stop working either I was working I was coordinating externally and marking two other units while having my first child also moved house at the same time there was a lot going on and coming into that role, uh, coming back into work, was hard. And I had to figure out what what working as a parent looked like for me. That it wasn't just, oh, Brenna's back at work the way that she used to be. And it took me a while to figure that out. As stupid as that sounds, I still had this idea that I could still make it work. Because I was still figuring out what being a mum was and what that how much time that took up like and what those needs were going to look like at given points of the day and even after because I did it took me a while to put um, my first child into childcare because there was a part of me that had that guilt mm. of having someone else raise essentially helping raise my child and also there was a lot of people in the family were like oh, well look after and there was there was a whole thing and I'm like no you will not so but once it started to happen and I gave that trust and started building those relationships and started figuring things out and, you know, as you work through the different life stages with children, things get easier and then harder again and easier and <laughs> harder. But things eventually start getting much easier because you kind of know what you're doing and you kind of trust that you know what you're doing. You're not flying um, unprepared anymore. So it took a while, but... And I would say I'm, I'm still learning as a parent... <laughs> We I have days where I feel like I'm the shittest mum on earth. And some days where I think, fuck, I'm a great parent. <laughs> so, and that's life, man. You have bad days, you have good days. That never changes.
0: What's been really helpful through figuring that out?
2: Talking to people. Talking to other people with similar experiences. I went to a, what they call peach... Mm. Peach Tree, those are the um, mums and bubs group on the north side of of Brisbane, Wavell Heights. So, my brother actually helped link me up with them because he saw in me, he was the first one to Mm -hmm. notice, and he was trying to organise this all stuff for me when I was um, telling everyone I was a okay. They were really great, so other mums had the same experience, so being able to talk with people that were going through the same thing. I mean, not everyone has the same exact same experiences, but had similar struggles, and that it was okay. But also, yeah, just recognizing in myself that that was okay, talking to more, you know, just talking to other, you know, you run the, just, the more that you open yourself up into the world, the more people that you meet that have the same experiences as you. My friends really stepped up as well. And coming into this, actually starting my PhD, was probably one of the best, Life decisions that I've made because the the friendships that I forged within the PhD group um, are going to be lifelong friendships. We've got a really great community of people, but I felt that I've I've created stronger relationships with my other work colleagues here at QUT, and it's so weird because I still feel it's a weird position being a PhD student, but also coordinating because I feel like I don't really know where I fit. <laughs> um, That's fair. Yeah. So, but I feel like I've come a lot closer to a lot of other, other academics as well. But what I've strangely found is when I became a parent and I really acknowledged that I was a parent and that I was okay that not that I couldn't do everything by myself and I was figuring out what parenting looked like for me, I suddenly became really confident in who I was because awesome. I felt that I'm not just responsible for me now I'm also responsible for these kids so I really trust in what I actually think and what mm. I know. So don't tell me that what I'm saying is incorrect because I know that it's right and I really trust this decision that I'm making and it became really confident in me making decisions now I feel and it's actually worked quite well in terms of my PhD and things that I've had to do because I've realised from having that personal anxiety that I've always suffered from anxiety that I just didn't call it that. I didn't really know what it was. It was this thing that would prop up every once in a while that would stop me from doing a lot of things. I just didn't just couldn't do it just I'd, I'd really sometimes struggle in my role in child protection was like I don't really want to make that phone call how could I procrastinate every other job right now so I don't have to make that phone call right now because it just this palpitations would happen because I knew it wasn't going to be good <laughs> I hated making the phone calls too um but n- I think now if I was to come into that role I'd be so much more confident yeah doing the work because I own my decisions now I've always been accountable for the decisions that I've said and, every, and everything that comes out of my mouth. I'm an open book with pretty much everything that's happened in my life. I only say what I believe, but I'm so much more confident in how I think about myself and what I do and the decisions that I make in work and personal life now.
0: What would your advice be to women who are pregnant or have young children and are studying?
2: Everything is going to work out. Some days, some weeks, some months are going to be really hard. Some times things are going to be a lot easier. You're always going to get through. You will figure out a way. That's saying, if there's a will, there's a way. Like 95% of the time, that works because sometimes yeah. people don't have the same access to things as other people. But I strongly do believe that if you do, if, especially, I don't know, weirdly as a parent, if you want something to happen, you'll make it happen. It might not look like it what you wanted at this at the outset, but you'll make it work. And a couple of years later, you'll realise that it's working better than what you wanted what you envisioned in the first place. But it will it will work out. Find your supports. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Like everyone needs help. You know, take time for yourself. As well, which is ridiculous because I never do. I know. But I'm like, like weren't
0: we just having that conversation? I like offering that advice. I know how important <laughs> it is. Um, Was I not just rousing on you to like, take better care of yourself? Practice. <laughs> do, I, do as I say, not as I say. <laughs> but I think that's an ongoing struggle that we have as humans. Yeah. And, you know, particularly as women who carry a lot of roles mm. in life I think one of the things that we, we know from literature that women struggle with is taking care of themselves and creating space for themselves and creating time for themselves. Look, if I had
2: the magic to create another day in the world, <gasps> I would do that and that would be my day.
0: Would it? Or would you just fill it with everything else, well, Brenna?
2: I, I probably would fill it with a bunch of other crap that i got to do. <laughs> um, it is hard to make time for yourself. But even sometimes, just, for me, sometimes just five minutes. Is are you really? It's weird. Like you really redefine what relaxation and time is when you become super busy. Like five minutes sit down time is an hour. Mm. Like it's for me now, because you take what you can get and you really enjoy <laughs> time. <laughs> what would that five minutes sit down time look like for you? It's usually sitting down doing the online grocery shop. <laughs> But apart from that, I do... If I don't fall asleep right away at the end of the night because sometimes I'm just so shattered that I'm in bed and I'm I'm asleep and I co-sleep with my youngest, so he's right there with me, so I'm never far away. It's listening to podcasts. Yeah. That's how I... Because I always... I've always been a person that needs sound around me when I'm working. I need to be listening to music or talking when I'm, when I'm working, which is really weird for some people. Like, how can you do that? But it m- helps me focus more for some reason. And at night time, when I'm going to sleep, I cannot have it quiet. Because in my house growing up, I had to be dr- constantly drowning out a whole lot of other noise that no one wants to be listening to mm. when they're going to sleep. So I know that's informed by my, my childhood experiences. But it's great because I can catch up on so many different things. Weird and quirky, the wonderful world of podcasting, these days. One ear, one headphone in to listen to podcasts, and another ear out to listen to the kids if they need me.
0: Do you have a favorite theorist and/or theory? been thinking
2: about this one and I just there's nothing that I can pinpoint as being a favourite because I feel that we draw on and I draw on so many there's no one answer or explanation to anything everything for me in terms of all my research has always been multifaceted Mm. like intersectionality for my honours research and I'm doing two using a combination of, of theories to inform Form to have my my framework. There's no one that really stands out to me because everything is important and has its place in helping you understand the complexities of. And we're talking just about child protection. This it's such a complex area. You've you know you're drawing on environmental theories, psychological theories, um, you know social theories. You under you have to understand some theories from criminology as well when you have that intersection no, there's no one size fits all approach there and I feel that I know you're not asking me to pigeonhole anything but there's no one that jumps out to me and goes this is my favourite, I don't even have a favourite band because I love heaps of different music
0: I think that's a really fair and legitimate perspective too and I think that's one of the things that's beautiful about knowledge and knowledge generation is that you don't have to pick a team some people work by picking a team. Other people are like, I want to play on all the teams in all the sports. <laughs> and that's <Me>. okay. <laughs> top tips for undergrad students in surviving university? All the things that I didn't do. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, um, as we always say, and this is, I'm putting my teaching hat on, stay on top of your work. There's so many There's so many tips that I would say. Um It is important to stay stay on top of things right from week one. But know that you know it is hard to catch up, but you can. Um that is that is my tip is try, even if you're taking look, even if you're just glancing at your reading, if that's all you have time to do, you will be surprised at how much knowledge you can retain. And sometimes even find that if you're and you you as you go through this degree you'll learn all different ways to do strategic reading sometimes when you're not sitting there trying to really concentrate and take notes and when you're doing that skimming strategic reading at a better time for brain retention because there are different times when our brain works better at different times of the day you're actually taking in more knowledge than you actually know and that's better than not doing anything at all so do something rather than nothing every week do what you can Mm -hmm. don't think because if you can't do everything that's on your list that you need to do that don't even bother because just doing those little things to get you by is enough and you'll build on that. You'll find the next semester, your time management skills will be better. Things only get things can only get better, right? <laughs> but also enjoy your time as an undergraduate student. It's important to to socialize and do those other things that you're meant to be doing at that age. And I know that it sucks because COVID, I don't know what I would have done as an undergrad if COVID has struck me down because it is an important part of your life when you're going out you're meeting new people having all that social activity because that's really important you've got to have that balance especially when you're young because I feel if you miss out on that at that age and I think it also informs um, you as an undergraduate student because you you have these discussions at all well at least I did at at social events like you take what you're learning and you think i'm like yep i am an expert on this (laughs) and i'm gonna go to this party and i'm gonna school all these people (laughs) i remember having i have a very distinct memory about having an argument about someone about what organized crime was because i didn't even know that he couldn't understand the definition of it and i was getting so passionate about it i don't even know why because i was like you don't even know what you're talking about (laughs) i know what i'm talking about (laughs) but you have those discussions Mm. outside of university which is Great, because we should be talking about these things outside of university. There shouldn't be discussions just for institutions. We should be talking about them and, and getting responses and seeing, testing the waters everywhere and seeing what public opinion is and what people in, I don't know, like other other degrees and other universities are are thinking about what they're learning it's important to have these discussions so that's why i say the social aspect is really important but yeah enjoy your time have that social thing stay on top of your work do what you can those will be my top tips and use the supports that are there they're there for you i know it's hard to ask for help no one likes doing it no one does but you'll be better for it the hardest thing is just to start like Mm. just like starting an assignment the hardest thing is just to start that assignment the hardest thing is just to to initially ask that question for help the rest of it will come
0: so much easier once you do that Brenna Matheson I think that you're an outstanding human and I deeply appreciate your work and your PhD and I'm very proud to be your supervisor and I also just think that your voice is really important and I appreciate the work that you do
2: and she's saying that with a
0: straight face. <laughs> I totally am saying that with a straight face because I mean it. I know, I know that there's a struggle, but I do. I mean it. I think that I have really appreciated what you've brought into my life. Thank you. So thank you for How To Academia and go take better care of yourself.
1: This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.